The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and, it, and grew up with it, and, sorry, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David, David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child is still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. 
David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and he made love to her. He gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messages to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken, your water and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes. Then he made them work at brick making. David did this, did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Thanks, Sarah. Evening, friends. How you going? You all right? Sound a bit sleepy. There's an outline on your handouts if you want to follow along or take notes or draw pictures. You can do that, do any of those things. Sometimes I concentrate better when I draw pictures. I'm going to pray for God's Holy Spirit to help us understand his word and apply it to our lives. Want to join me? Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth and a God of justice and love and mercy. And we thank you for your true word written down for us. Uh, but Lord, it was written a long time ago in a very ancient setting. So we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it and then apply it to our lives. So please, Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Tonight we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 15 years ago, before half of you were born, I worked in the fire protection industry, which meant I organised the installation of smoke detectors and fire extinguishers and fire doors and sprinkler systems and things like that uh, in buildings, things that hopefully keep you safe in a fire. And we had this one building that we maintained in Vaucluse. Now, Vaucluse is this rather exclusive suburb in the city, and this block of units was about 15 storeys high, and it was pretty much on a cliff looking out over the ocean. It was a beautiful uh, place to live. But it was an old building, and so it had no fire protection system in it whatsoever. 
Now, the last two decades, the councils of Sydney and probably the rest of Australia, I don't know, but Sydney have been ordering that buildings get brought up to current fire protection standards for the sake of people's safety. So our company uh, did a quote for them to install a fire protection system and all but one man on the body corporate, the managing committee, said, yep, 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 please go ahead. This one man said, no way. You're just trying to rip us off. I've lived here for 40 years and there's never, ever been a fire. You're just trying to get money from us. You're money grubbers. And my boss kind of politely argued with him, no, 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 this is council, it's a requirement and the safety and fires happen all the time, even though you might not have seen one. No, 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 you're just trying to take my money. Well, there was a fire in his apartment and he had fallen asleep and he didn't realise that his wife had gone out there was an electrical short, it caused a fire. He woke up dazed and confused. There was smoke filling his apartment. He ran out of his apartment, but then realised he didn't have his wife, so he went back into his apartment to look for her. She wasn't there. He became overcome with smoke and he collapsed on the ground. The fire brigade broke down his door with axes and dragged him out of there and revived him, and he was okay. And he was also our best friend <laughs> and biggest advocate... <laughs> for the installation of a fire protection system in that building from that day on. He was very helpful and very cooperative, and whenever we needed to get on site, he was there, uh, ready to welcome us. He had been arrogant, and he'd been stubborn, and his arrogance and stubborn were shattered in a way that almost killed him. And after that, he was helpful. Now, last week, uh, if you were here, in 2 Samuel 11, we saw the same stubborn arrogance in David, the king of Israel. And devastatingly, he went on to use his stubborn arrogance and his kingly power to commit adultery and then murder in order to try to cover up his adultery, which of course cannot be covered up. Nothing can be concealed from God. God sees all. And this week, we see God go to extreme measures to shatter his arrogance and shatter his contempt. Now, a couple of questions to consider as we study God's Word this evening, and you might have more, and that's good. Um, here we go. So firstly, do we deeply appreciate the kindness and mercy of God as Christians or do we stubbornly take him for granted? Do we get out of bed each morning and thank him for a new day and thank him for our lives? Do we thank him for all the good things he has given us? Or do we just kind of ignore him and take him for granted? Or worse, do we, do you, arrogantly, willfully sin against God and perhaps against others, thinking there won't be any consequences? And if we are caught in sin, if we are sinning, if we are ignoring God, what will the consequences be? Some things to think about as we go through this this evening. Well, if you're here last week, you'll know the context for this part of God's true word is the devastating turn of events in chapter 11. King David, the one who God had blessed with victory over all his enemies, the one who sought to be a blessing to those inside the kingdom, chapter 9, and outside the kingdom, chapter 10, has fallen into sin in the most spectacular of fashions. Lusting after Bathsheba as she appropriately bathed on a rooftop nearby, David had her brought to him and committed adultery with her, then had her husband murdered in order to try to cover it up. 
He took the wife of another man and he took another man's life. The deeper horror, if it's possible, is how calculating and unrepentant David was throughout the entire ordeal. Well, it's been a year since David's despicable act and from what we know, he's shown no sign of remorse that we're aware of and God decides to act against him. God is a God of justice and that's exactly what we see in this passage tonight. Justice is done and it might surprise you in several ways how God enacts his justice against David. So God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king in his sin. And Nathan does this initially by fashioning a story to reveal David's gross sin to him. And I'll read the story again. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat, of his, eat from his plate and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. There came a traveller, and I'm going to stop there. Now, the story is genius, and it ensnares David brilliantly. There's a few things to notice already that I want to point out. Notice that the rich man, verse 2, already had flocks and herds. He'd been blessed with all these flocks and herds given to him, but the one new lamb that the poor man had, he paid for himself. And he loved it dearly. It ate from his plate, drank from his cup, even slept in his bed. He treated it like his very own child. Now, I reckon there's probably dog or cat owners amongst us who can relate closely to this man with this animal eating from his plate and drinking from his cup, sleeping in his bed. I want to ask for a show of hands who has pets in their bed at night. I'm sure there's several. Now, obviously, in the story... Uriah represents the poor man, David represents the rich man, and Bathsheba is represented by the lamb in the story. Uriah treasured her dearly. She was everything to him. And notice the poor man is a giver. He gave food, he gave drink, and he gave his bed and his affection, of course. These are the same three things that Uriah the Hittite refused from David out of honour and out of diligence to his work. To try to cover up his crime, David had Uriah called out of the army and he said to Uriah, back in verse 11, chapter 11, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, go home, eat, drink and sleep with your wife. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark, and Is- the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house? He can't do it out of honour to his army that he's a part of. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah was a good and righteous man who wanted little in life and who gave a lot. Verse 4, back to the story. Now there came a traveller to the rich man 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own from his extensive flocks and herds to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he stole the poor man's lamb and killed it and cooked it and gave it to the man who had come to him. The rich man was a taker. He took the one ewe lamb that this poor man owned and dearly loved, killed it, cooked it, and fed it to this random traveller. Now, how's the king going to respond to the story? Well, he blows his top. He goes off his nut. Completely overreacts. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. What an honourable, honourable king David is. Well, there's a couple of things to note. Firstly, he's the king. He is the number one justice knower and deliverer in the land. And he, his, his sentence is death to this man who has stolen a lamb. Let's be honest, as mean as it was, it's just a lamb. Now, under Levitical law, the punishment for stealing a lamb is not death. It's fourfold restitution, which was the second thing that was his sentence. Fourfold restitution, that's right, but not death. And secondly, and most importantly, where does he get off? judging another for a crime when he's yet to judge himself for a much, much, much more heinous crime. Enter Nathan. You're the man. You're the guy in the story times 100. You're the guy in the story on steroids. Don't you see? You're the guy. David's crime was 100 times worse. It wasn't a lamb, it was a person. He killed a person and stole his wife and committed adultery with her and took her as his own and then has the audacity to point the finger at the rich man in the story. Now, friends, I want us to kind of take stock of ourselves at this moment and just ask ourselves, can we similarly be quick to judge others and slow to judge ourselves? Do we find it easy to point the finger at others and the things they're doing wrong and hard to look in the mirror and see what we're doing wrong? It makes it easier to live with our own shortcomings when we keep our gaze fixed on other people and their shortcomings, doesn't it? But you can see the hypocrisy of doing such a thing in this passage right here. Well, how can, how can we change? How can we be more Jesus-like? In, how do we change our hearts to make us slow to judge others and quick to judge ourselves as David should have been as king. Well, Nathan now proceeds to hand down God's shattering judgment in two parts. This is possibly the most dramatic scene the world has ever known until the cross. (laughs) David is God's chosen, anointed king. God's precious chosen king, chosen to rule over his precious sheep. And it's beyond a tragedy that he behaved in this way and a devastation that God's judgment must necessarily fall upon his chosen king. God is just 
merciful and loving and just, he must judge his king for his sin. Now, the judgment's kind of in two parts. Firstly, the judgment of the murder of Uriah, then the judgment of the adultery with Bathsheba. The first thing Nathan does is remind David of all that he has, all that he's been given by God. This is a message from God, reminding David of all he has. Friends, the first step to contentment and the best guard against coveting is to remember all that we've already been given and thanking God for that. Look at verse 7 again. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, David's the king of Israel, God's above David, the God of Israel, I anointed you, look at all the emphatic eyes, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add add to you as much more. He would have given him double. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, our sworn enemy. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me, your God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David despised the word of the Lord and in doing so despised God directly. The sons of Eli behaved in this, with the same wickedness and disdain towards God at the start of 1 Samuel, and the judgment upon them was this, Far be it from me, for those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. In other words, God's blessing will not come to those who despise him. God's rich blessing to David will tragically now pass to another. And the question we must ask ourselves at this point Will God remove his blessing entirely? Will David be killed for his crimes as he deserves under Levitical law? Will God blot out his anointed king? He certainly deserves to be cast out of God's kingdom, does he not? Well, God's first pronouncement of judgment is that the sword shall never leave his house. It was with the sword that David took Uriah's life and it will be with the sword that trouble and calamity shall now enter his household and we see this unfold throughout the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. And secondly, David is judged for his adultery. Let's read on. Because you've despised me, verse 10, and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, remarkably, astoundingly, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan left. 
Blessing turns to punishment as God promises he'll raise up evil in place of blessing out of David's own house. His wives will be taken from him and given to others. And despite the fact that David's adultery was committed in secret, this will be done in broad daylight for all Israel to see, for the world to see, the sun to see. And finally, finally, David repents of his sin. Finally. It took the shattering word of the Lord to bring David to his knees. God's judgment is just and David has brought this upon himself. His conscience didn't bring him to repentance after he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop. His conscience didn't bring him to repentance after he had Bathsheba brought to him and slept with her. Did she beg him to stop? Did she say, I'm married, what are you doing, king? His conscience didn't lead him to repentance after that. His conscience didn't lead him to repentance after he had Uriah brought to him and Uriah refused to play his, in his sick plot to cover his sin. His conscience did not lead him to repentance after he ordered Uriah to be killed. After the report came to him that Uriah had been killed, still he did not repent. And now, this is a year later, a year of contemplation, a year of staring at Bathsheba across the breakfast table, and still he has not come to repentance. It took the shattering word of God to bring his hardened heart to its knees, and he finally and rightly exclaimed, I've sinned against the Lord. He sinned against Bathsheba, absolutely. He sinned against Uriah, most definitely. He sinned against his kingdom. But most importantly and most devastatingly, he sinned against the Lord. And God's second judgment for David's adultery is, is challenging and, and raises questions. The child conceived out of his wickedness must die. God inflicted the baby with an illness. David laid with the baby and wept and begged for mercy from God in sackcloth and ashes. And after seven days, the child died. This is a tough one. And you might have questions. I've got questions. How come... The baby died and not David. The baby didn't do anything wrong. David did something wrong. That doesn't seem fair. And they're good questions to ask. And we may not know all the answers. I have some thoughts, but it might not be adequate. But here's some important thoughts that might help us. In a real sense, David did cop it. He had the brutal reality of watching his child suffer and die as a consequence of his own sin. And in that, we know that all of our lives, before we're born, after we're born, after we die, our lives are all ours, David's, the baby's lives are in the hands of a good and loving and just God who always does what is good and right and so we must entrust all people to him. Who are we to question God? Why he gives anyone life 
and why he takes life away. Who are we to question God? But also, this is the devastating effect that sin can have. Tragically, this child represents the absolute disdain, abuse and dishonouring of the God of all the universe. God was dishonoured in David's actions. David was God's anointed king and he went and despised God so deliberately and calculatedly and dramatically that the fruit of his sin must end, must be blotted out in order to restore honour to God. It's hard and it's harsh. We think very individualistically these days. We think of the rights of the child and rightly so, rightly so. But we must see the bigger picture and we must cling to the reality and truth that God is good and always does what is right and just. And as we press on to the end of our passage, we see again the extraordinarily gracious character of God on display once more. Look with me at verse 13. We're going to go backwards a little bit and then forwards. David said to Nathan, Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Despite David's terrible crime, which deserves death under Levitical law, God is gracious to his anointed one and spares his life. David deserves life, but God, sorry, David deserves death, but God blesses him with life. David deserves to die, but God saves him through grace and mercy. He pardons his sin. And not only that, God grants him victories. We read on to the end of the chapter, which we're not going to study in depth tonight. He grants him victory over the Ammonites once more, comprehensive victory over the Ammonites. <coughs> we see at the end of the chapter that all come back to Jerusalem and, and we get this picture of peace being blessed upon David and his kingdom, not so much his household, as we will see. But the great jewel in God's graciousness to David isn't just God keeping his promises that a saviour will come from the line of David, which he does. But God brings about his good despite human sin and wickedness. Look at verse 24 again. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. She just lost a child. He went into her, he lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of God. It seems that David's grown a heart once more. Hallelujah. He, he comforts his wife and God blesses them with a son so that David's line may continue. And the son is beloved by God. God's blessing clearly has passed from David to his son, Solomon. And Solomon was to be the wisest and wealthiest king the world had ever seen. Now, a couple of things to think about. What's this mean for us tonight? Well, sin's never worth it, is the first thing. Sin is never worth it. And sin is always crouching at the door. David, it was going great. For David, but he got complacent, he got arrogant, and sin was crouching at the door. 
And sin impacts us, it impacts those we love, and most of all, it despises God's goodness, it despises his word, it despises him. Sin happens when we stubbornly and willfully distrust and despise the goodness of God, and that can creep up on us as we just get complacent, we forget, we get lazy in our thankfulness towards God, we get lazy in reading our Bibles and remembering all that God has given us, and when we, when we forget all the good gifts that God has given us, we lose contentment and we'll go to great lengths to get it back. We'll sin to get contentment back. The world calls it happiness. Christians have contentment and joy in the midst of suffering because we're thankful to the Lord and all he has given us most clearly in his son, the Lord Jesus. We find contentment in him. Friends, Practice thankfulness to God every day. Practice. You'll get better at it. Practice thankfulness. Find your deepest satisfaction in God, in His saving Son, in His guiding Holy Spirit, rather than in the fleeting things of this world and even in the people of this world. Find your deepest satisfaction in the Lord. God is a just God who will not let our sins go unpunished. And we've seen that this evening in this passage. And we've seen the devastating consequences that sin can have. The sinful heart that looks to cover up the sin and creates more sin. To continue down that path leads to judgment. But you say, we all sin. (laughs) What are we to do? We're all sinners, this side of heaven. What are we to do? Well, repentance is always worth it. Sin is never worth it. Repentance is always worth it. Every time, it might be hard, it might be painful, it might be awkward. Repentance is always worth it. David sinned and the consequences were grave and I shudder to think what might have happened had he not listened to God and finally repented. What would have come next if he'd never repented? But he did. And God was gracious to him in so many ways, as he always is. He forgave him. He allowed him to live. He gave him victory over his enemies. He blessed him with a son who David would raise to be an even greater king than he was. Repentance is always worth it. God's ear is ever bent towards us. He longs for us to pray to him to repent of our sins and to turn away from them. And he promises to help us by the power of his Holy Spirit to turn away from sin. Of course he does. Sin leads to judgment. Repentance leads to blessing. Sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to blessing. That much seems very clear to me from chapter 12. Friends, read God's word often, every day, with an open heart and allow it to correct you and rebuke you and train you, perhaps shatter you in your sin. Perhaps you are stuck in a sin. Open God's word and allow God's word to shatter your sin so you might humbly repent of your sin, which leads to blessing. Repentance is a path to forgiveness, to grace, 
to blessing from God. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we are so sorry for our sins, for the ways in which we fail you, ignore you, lack contentment in you, are thankless for your goodness to us in so many ways. God, we're sorry. Please forgive us all for despising your word. Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you will move us to repent where we need to, to open your word and allow it to correct us and change us and rebuke us, to lead us into righteous living. Lord, where it's necessary, may we repent of our sins to one another and find forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. Lord, if anyone is trapped in deep sin, I pray for them now, Lord, that you'll rescue them from their sin, that you'll shatter them with your word if that's what needs to happen, that you'll break their sin and lead them to repentance and shower them with blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.